if I don't, Rex, uh, Amy Jo can uh, run you some copies in the office because she knows what to do. All right. So uh, if you have your Bibles, we're in the book of Ephesians. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Thank you for doing some praying. Uh, if you want to really get down and dirty and do some prayer, Sunday night is the time. We have a time in the Word, then have a time in prayer. It's Sharon's favorite service of the week, isn't it, Sharon? I don't know if it is or not, but I just, I'm teasing her a little bit. But she likes it. She's uh, faithful, and uh, I like it too. Um, all right, so we're in the book of Ephesians, and you have your hand out here, and we're jumping into chapter 5. And this has kind of been a very, you know, it's been a disjointed study with uh, all the things going on in our own calendar, all the things going on with COVID. And so I thought I'd do some review tonight before we jump into this last section. So <clears throat> a lot of times when you look at a, at a, uh, uh, an outline of uh, the book of Ephesians, they're going to break it in half. And that's a good way to do it. There's nothing wrong with that. But I've, I've broken, I've outlined the whole book in really three sections. And the entire uh, title or in the essence of what I've been really emphasizing um, since we started this study in the summer was <clears throat> the, the, the revealing of our true identity. And it's been some pretty high-level discussions because the first two chapter, chapters deal with Christ's deity, and that's on your outline, Christ's deity is Ephesians 1 and 2, and it reveals Christ's deity. Well, that's pretty heavy stuff. We're talking about the Godhead, you know, uh, it's, it's awesome. We had a great study there. And then it gets a little more practical when we get into the second, um, you know, division that I have there, which is chapters 3 and 4. Usually folks do 1 through 3 and then 4 through 6. But I believe uh, another way we can see this is Ephesians 3 through 4 reveals the church's unity. And it really does. We took, we took you know, plenty of time to talk about that. Um, and then uh, let me jump ahead because I'm, I'm giving you these right now. And then the last section, which we get to, to look at tonight, is Ephesians 5 through 6, uh, which we will not get through tonight. We'll barely break, you know, very far down through chapter 5, but that's okay. Um, and we will, we will see how Ephesians 5 through 6 reveals uh, the Christian's duty. And so um, you could also put responsibility, but I like duty because it goes good with unity and deity, and they're all Y words, so... Uh, and it has a lot of, you know, chapter 6 has a lot of mil military uh, overtones, so I like the word duty. So that's what we, we're going with. Now, the purpose of our study, just kind of, I kind of got ahead of myself, is simply to reveal Christ's sufficiency, um, the church's unity, and the Christian's duty. So we have seen those first two accomplish. The third is Christian's duty uh, through the study of Paul's prison epistle to the Ephesians. The theme uh, is uh, building the body of Christ and the image and likeness of Christ. We need to look like Christ. And we've been revealing our true identity. All right, so we covered that. Um, and so I want to just kind of point out where we've been uh, the last several, uh, the last several really months now. Um, and this should just be review. In Ephesians 1, 1 through 2, we saw Paul's introduction to us, which was a great introduction uh, to the saints, which are at Ephesus. So he's not really writing this book we use it a lot in evangelism, especially chapter 2. But this, this epistle is written to Christians, right? This is the context of people who know Christ. So it was an introduction to us. Um, and then verses 3 through 14 is that beautiful passage that starts off with, you know, God has blessed, God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in he heavenly places in Christ. It doesn't start off, it ends off in chapter uh, 1 and verse 3. The last part of that chapter talks about how we have all these spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And so we talked about that and how God has, uh, you know, 
chosen, uh, predestinated us to be uh, under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself. And we dealt with all those big scary words like predestination and all of that and election and took care of all that. So we understand that we don't follow, by the way, a philosophy of uh, a Greek philosophy or, or Augustine's philosophy. We, uh, we follow the Bible. So God's plan for his saints is to be predestined. And we talked about how Romans 8 uh, God wants us to be, uh, he has predestined us to be conformed to his image. And that's why he's revealing his deity, because there's so much more to the Christian life than you see on earth. There's so much to look forward to. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more tonight as we get into our, our text. Then we talked about uh, the, Paul's prayer for us. Really, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, uh, there's a prayer that Paul offers, and it's a really intense prayer. And uh, we took quite a bit of time talking about that. And then in chapter 2, which is a very familiar passage, most of us, um, you know, if you've been in church very long, uh, you know, some of the first verses I ever learned in the Bible were in Ephesians 2. Um, it starts off, and you hath he quickened who are dead and trespasses and sins. And it goes on to the famous, uh, we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Most Christians are familiar with that. So we saw, you know, how we're quickened from death, we're quickened in Christ, um, and then we saw a, a quickened understanding of our identity in relation to Christ's deity. Verses 11 through 22 of Ephesians are often kind of left off, but there's a lot of meat in those things, so we, we chewed on that and, and tried to get down to the bone a little bit, and that was a good time. And then we moved over to chapter 3 and saw uh, the revelation to the body of Christ, uh, the intercession for the body of Christ, and then the unity of the body of Christ in 4, 1 through 6. And the, uh, I think I got ahead of myself, there we go. The unity of the body of Christ in, in chapter 4, 1 through 6. The diversity of the gifts of the body of Christ in 7 through 13. And then the responsibility of the members of the body of Christ in 14 through 32 of chapter 4. Now, that's a really good place to jump off into chapter 5 because we're dealing with the duty of the Christian. And so uh, Paul has already front-loaded this in chapter 4 with dealing with the responsibility of uh, to the body, right? So we know we talked about in chapter 4 the unity. There's one spirit, right? There's one body. We're all part of it. We're all unified in Christ. Uh, there's one baptism. We talked about all of those ones, ones, ones. And then he, he broke off <clears throat> in uh, verse, uh, you know, in verse 7 and starts talking about the diversities in the body of Christ and how, uh, how important it is that we work together in the body of Christ. We have a responsibility. Uh, because what we do affects uh, the, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to go back and reteach or preach all that. And I'm really not preaching anyway. I'm teaching. So the way I handle this, you know, th this passage and this book's a little different than if I was up here on Sunday morning kind of preaching. So you can ask questions, by the way. No questions, dumb or stupid, just the questions you don't ask. So feel free to raise your hand and go, what was that blank? Or what was you saying? Or how does that work? And we'll do all that. So, uh, so Ephesians 5 is where we are tonight. Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you where we're going because we're only going to get some of this done tonight. We're not even going to get all the way through uh, this first point, which is Ephesians 5, 1 through 21, uh, deals with uh, our walk, walking like Christ, walking like Christ. And then we're going to see uh, wedding like Christ. Uh, that's where we're going to be heading. Um, and not wedding, I put wed like Christ, right? And that's dealing with Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, dealing with the picture of Christ in the church. So we'll get to that in a couple weeks. And then we will get to um, uh, Ephesians 6, 1 through 9, 
which is waxing strong in Christ. Many of you are familiar with that, right? The, the whole armor of God. And then, uh, well, actually, that's not the whole armor of God. That's dealing with growth. Children, servants, and masters. And then we get to the whole armor of God where we war like Christ. Sorry, I got my outline a little discombobulated in my mind. But you don't want to go to war until you're strong, right? You want to be mature before you put on that armor. Remember, David's like, I can't put on this armor yet. You know, he had to grow into that. Uh, and then, um, and then we, we'll, we'll finish up with the ambassador, the Apostle Paul, and how he wins the peace uh, through Christ. And so uh, he does that through uh, that work as an ambassador. All right, so that brings us to really where we are tonight and, uh, and kicking this thing off in regard to the walking like Christ. Well, to do that, we're going to we're gonna have to do a little bit of study in the Word of God. So Ephesians 5 is a great chapter. I'm, I'm excited about this section. Out of our study, you know, God's been revealing our true identity in the book of Ephesians. We've seen God's divinity in uh, chapters 1 and 2. Uh, which gives us great incentive, right? Uh, all those spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We've seen the church's unity in chapters 3 and 4, which gives us that, that unity, that camaraderie, that ability to work together uh, in the body of Christ through the Spirit of Christ. And now we're going to see the balance of all of that and how it falls in <clears throat> into uh, this, these chapters in chapters 5 and 6 as we get to walk it out practically. Let me pause for just a minute. I'm going to cough, Ron. Um, I'm not quite hydrated enough, so I apologize. That's, that's my fault. Should have been throwing down some more water today. All right, so the balance of this text builds on what Paul stated uh, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 when he charged us to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we're called. Paul not only tells us what we need to do, right? We all like to tell people what to do. Do this, do that. You know, we're all armchair quarterbacks. But Paul's actually going to, he's going to tell us how to do it. And that's super practical. It's one thing to tell people what to do. It's another thing to tell them how to do it. So we're going to, this is going to get practical in the last couple chapters here of Ephesians. And so he wants us to walk out what he's taught us. It's one thing to tell a baby to walk, right? So just as an analogy, it's not going to do me a lot of good if there's a baby, right? Uh, the Sheltons have a baby, and we say, we just tell you, what's your baby's name? Christopher. We say, Christopher, well, imagine that. He, junior? Awesome. So little Christopher Jr. We say, Christopher, walk. Well, that's not going to help us. Christopher's going to just look at us and goo-goo and gaga. Right, so if it's it's true that we need Christopher to walk someday. I mean, we want Christopher to walk, um, but we got to help him. Right? It's another thing to take a child by the hands, right? Help them sit up. First, they you know how they are. They got to roll over. First, they got to lift their head up. Right? Then they start to kind of roll over, and then next thing you know, they're kind of scooching around. They're wiggling across the floor on their bellies. Next thing you know, they're they're crawling. Right, and the next thing you know, they're sitting up, and then the next, and then you're taking them by the hands, right? And and they don't, you just don't say walk, right? The whole time you're kind of you're kind of working with them, you're kind of helping them along, you're grabbing them by their little grippers, their little fingers, and you're helping them, you know, kind of learn how to stay sitting up. Before the, you know, how, isn't it funny how little kids are? They're kind of like weevils wobble, but they don't fall down, and eventually they, whoo, you know. So you're, they're building the 
they're building that core muscle. I need to work on that a little myself. And so, and then they, and then you get them, get a hold of those those fingers, you know, and you start getting them to stand up, and they toddle around, and and boom, they fall, and then they get up. And so, anyway, you guys know the drill. I think you, you know, we've all been through that, seen that. You've all been through it, really. Actually, um, uh, you may not remember that, but uh, I don't remember it. But I do remember with my own kids, right? That's how it goes. That's how it goes with our kids, our grandkids, and our siblings and all that stuff. We're teaching them how to walk and, and, and go forward. Well, these last two chapters are kind of a perfect for a spiritual development because it takes a, a Christian uh, from where they are and where they start. And Paul's already addressed a lot of that in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4. Uh, but he really just really makes it so simple that you can't miss it. And so Paul's like a good father or a really good big brother, and he's helping uh, in a very patient and simple and orderly fashion, walk the child of God into maturation. As a matter of fact, I use Ephesians 6 oftentimes as, an, as just kind of a template, an easy way. If I want a really simple way to explain discipleship, uh, I use Ephesians chapter 6 because it starts with a child, then it goes to a servant, and then it goes to a master, and then it goes to a soldier or a warrior, and then it ends up with Paul, the ambassador. I know there's not seven, so it's, we can't teach that properly. But it does, it's just a simple little outline. I'm just kidding about that. It's a simple little outline that you can use to just kind of see the maturation of a person as they grow. From a child to a servant to a master to a soldier to an ambassador. Someone who is, is, a, is an advocate. All right, so, so Ephesians 5 and 6 are very helpful. And Paul takes the Christian and... And he walks us through that. And, and so uh, he, he brings it all together for us. The child of God has all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We know that from Ephesians 1.3. The child of God has the spirit of God and has been united in the Godhead and the church through Christ and has been called with a great calling. We know that from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4. Nonetheless, that won't matter to a child of God if they can't walk out God's will for their life. Right? Those are great promises. Those are great things. Those are really awesome biblical truths that can preach forever. But the reality is you still got to put that to action, right? As we say, we got, the rubber has to meet the road, right? You got to put some shoes on that thing and, and get it going. So Ephesians as a whole, and especially 5 and 6, chapters 5 and 6, is laid out for the Gentile believer. This is a uniquely Gentile church in Ephesus. Not that there weren't Jews there, but this church in Ephesus was obviously, this was the key church, as we covered in the introduction, in Asia Minor. From this church, the other churches in Asia were planted. They were going out two by two, planting churches. We know that from our study in the book of Acts. This was a key church, and, and it was a key Gentile, as a, a key church that was full of Gentile believers. Uh, so Paul abandons the kind of the orbital or the circular logic of a, of a Semitic person, uh, you know, kind of how they loop their thoughts, and us Westerners kind of go, huh? You know, something like you read in the Old Testament, or the book of Revelation, you get four views, or the book, of the, the four Gospels, you get four views of the same story. That's more of an Oriental, or a, uh, or a, what we would say is an Eastern mindset. If you go look at Buddhist writings, it goes in a circle. How do Westerners see things? Very lineal, yeah, Jamie's right, lineal, right? We're like one, two, three, Four, right, and uh, and so that's exactly the way Paul writes Ephesians, and especially you see that in chapters five and six. So even though Paul can write kind of more in a circular fashion, he is Semitic. He knows how to do that. He's Jewish. He's got an Eastern mind. But the reality is, when it comes to Ephesians, he's making it so clear, which is, is also kind of an amazing insight to the Apostle Paul. 
He is super bright, super smart. And, uh, and God's using him in a supernatural way, of course, to build the body of Christ. And I've mentioned, too, in our introduction that Romans is like a, or, uh, Ephesians is like a mini-Romans. Right? This is something you can build your life upon. It's something you can build the church upon. I mean, this is some, it's, not got, it's not as voluminous uh, and not as heady as Romans, but it really has a lot of the same essential doctrines as you go through the book of Ephesians in a more simplified way so we can get our head around it and our hearts around it, especially as we get into chapters 5 and 6. So Ephesians as a whole, and especially 5 and 6, is laid out for the Gentile believer. And Paul abandons that logic, that orbital or that circular Semitic type of way to express things, and it has this very clear lineal fashion in which he, he, he lays things out for us. So no Gentile for the next 2,000 years is going to miss it, right? So we shouldn't be missing. This isn't hard stuff that we're going to see. The hard part is not, is not seeing what it says or what it means. It's actually to do what it says. And so that's what we're going to be working on the next uh, several weeks in Ephesians 5 and 6. And so, um, so I, you got homework tonight. You, anybody want to know your homework? All right, a couple of you, three of you. My wife, she left. She doesn't even want to be a part of it. I'm just kidding. She'll be back. But the homework is to read, if you haven't done it lately, read chapters 5 and 6. <clears throat> All right? So this is a really great, uh, it's quick read. It'll take you 15 minutes or less. It won't really take you very long. But read it. Take your time with it. And just think about, just think about Paul writing this to you because it fits so perfectly. The culture of Ephesus fits so perfectly with where we are today. And again, look at it in the context. These are your marching orders. This isn't written to somebody else, although it was written to somebody else historically. Tonight, this stuff that we're covering, it's written to us. This is God's word to us. And so we need to take a look at it and apply it to ourselves. Don't think about the person next to you, right? We're going we're gonna to look at us and make sure that our hearts are where they need to be. And if you don't come away in, this, in the next several weeks with practical application, um, it's frankly because you don't want to. You just really don't want to. Uh, It's something that that all of us, you know, if you just take some time and look at it, there's all kinds of practical things that we're going to be able to apply in the next several weeks. And, you know, the New Year's coming up right around the corner, right? So, hey, let's get ahead of everybody. We don't have to wait until, you know, uh, a bunch of people are drunk at Times Square, right, to get our lives in order. We can get a jump start on everybody. So uh, we can do that right now. So let's do this. Let's look at Ephesians 5. Enough talking about it. Let's jump into it. Ephesians 5, and I'm just going to read the, the uh, uh, 21 verses. That's his, his, we're not going to get through all 21 verses, but I want to point some, some things out about this, and then uh, we'll dive into the first uh, eight verses for tonight, verse seven, first seven verses. Okay, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not once be named among you as become a saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness. Notice it doesn't say in darkness. Ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things are reproved, all things that are reproved, I'm sorry, are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light, wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that we walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore be not, be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Heavenly Father, as we, uh, we've already prayed once, but Lord, I, I just want to ask a special blessing upon the reading and the hearing of your word as we, as we attempt, Lord, to just uh, break this up and, and meditate upon it and apply it to our lives. Lord, help us today uh, meet with you. Lord, we, we need you. You're in us, no doubt about it. We're gathered together tonight. We pray, God, that you would just teach us. Lord, teach us. Give us a great time in your word. We exalt you. We thank you. We praise you tonight. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, so we're in Ephesians 5, and uh, that's the text. So let's just kind of dive into this. So tonight we're just going to be able to talk about the first part of this, which is to walk like Christ. And uh, really, verses 1 through 21, that's, that's what it's dealing with, walking like Christ. And I wanted to read all that because I want to just point some highlights out because uh, I'm going to dive down a little bit and get lost in the, a little bit into the details. So before I jump into that, notice that he does talk a lot about walking. If you've got like a wide margin Bible or you mark in your Bible, I would, I would just want to quickly give you a little outline that you can see. Really starting in chapter 4, he, in verse 1, he tells us to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we're called. And so that's important, right? You want to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. Then you get to verse 2 of chapter 5, and he says, walk in love. All right? So he's telling us how to do that. We need to walk in love. And then you need, in verse 8, we need to walk as children of light. And then when you uh, get down to verse 15, he says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. And so he's giving us practical ways to walk this out. In the, and those are the four you know, walking words that you can find there in 4, and, uh, and especially in chapter 5, in verses 1 through 21, you get three of them. And so no wonder we're talking about walking like Christ. We're going to walk like Christ. So when you look at verse 1 here, it says, Be ye, therefore, followers uh, of God as dear children. Now, he isn't just talking to me, although he is talking to me. He's talking to us. There's an expectation that we, because he's already taught us about unity, right? Um, my life affects your life. Your life affects my life. So we're all in this together. And so we should all be followers of God as dear children. Uh, but you're also a dear child, right? And so... God, you know what? That means your brother is as dear to God as you are to God, and your sister's as dear to God as you are to God. So God loves all of us. We're all dear children, which is great. So he starts, he starts off chapter 5 with that phrase, Be ye therefore followers of God. And, and by the way, when you see the word therefore, let me see how many have been paying attention. What should we do? See what it's there for. Very good, Rex. Rex has been around a while. So when you see the word therefore, you should always remember what in the world is it there for. 
And it leads us back to chapter 4. I'm not going to go back through all of chapter 4. We know that it starts off talking about walking worthy of the vocation wherewith we're called. We, when we were in chapter 4, we, we taught about how that vocation is calling. It's kind of like a double use of the same word. He's like, walk worthy of the calling wherewith you're called. Right? So he wants you to fulfill your call. Uh, he wants you to walk out what you've been called to do. And then he gets into this chapter, and he gets back to the walking in love, uh, walking as children of light, and then walking circumspectly. And so, and so uh, in Ephesians 4, I'm just going to kind of skip down toward the end uh, for time's sake, and also we've covered this ground pretty well. Uh, he does, in verse 29, deal with corrupt communication, which he's going to pick that back up here tonight. We'll talk about that, too, in verse uh, you know, 6 or so. But he, he's dealing with how we communicate, and, uh, and then he says in verse 30, Hey, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed until the day of redemption. So the things that we do can grieve the Spirit of God. Not just one another, but it can grieve God who's in us. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. When we got to Ephesians 4, we, we broke it up into what to put on and what to put off, right? And he's like, hey, put away. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. Get rid of it with all malice, all of that. And then he, he gives something that is positive that we can do. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So he gives us a, like a, a marching order, a practical thing that we can do, which is, is really have a tender heart and be kind to each other uh, because we're unified, right? That's what we learned in chapters 3 and 4. We're, one, we're all in this together. And so, and so Paul is not only telling us that, that, you know, what we need to be doing, which is don't grieve this and quench the Spirit of God. He's going to take the balance of the epistle to be very meticulous and tell us, well, how to walk all this out the way we need to. And he uses this last sentence in verse 32, in essence, as a springboard in the remainder of Ephesians. This subject of be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And I think most of us understand how that rolls, and we celebrate. We'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper in a couple of weeks. And when you when you think about the Lord's Supper, you got you got a, a table full of guys, all of them fixing to deny Christ, and He knows it. One of them is is the son of perdition, Judas Iscariot, who's going to betray Him. And yet Jesus, hey, He has dinner with them, prays with them, invites them down to the garden, you know, to to pray with Him that night. And uh, they fail, <laughs> they fail, and they fail. And yet he still comes and gets them after they fail and makes them his disciples and sends them to reach the world. It's a lot like our story, right? A bunch of failures, but God loves them and he uses them anyway. And he says, do what I do, forgive people. And so ever, as often as we do it, we get together up here. We got the Lord's, you know, the Lord's supper table here and we put the elements out and we do that. And we remember that. And he tells us to remember that. And then, of course, how he died on the cross for our sins and and covered all of that, and, and so he sets an example for us. He did, he did it for us. His admonition is to be uh, followers of God. Notice that what he says in verse 1. Be, be ye therefore, right, followers of God, because God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. So God's forgiven you, so you need to, you, we need to follow him, right? Therefore, be ye followers of God as dear children. You understand your value when you understand the price that has been paid. Right when we think about the price that's been paid for us, we are man. We it's amazing how valuable we are. The children of God, that's an amazing thing. And so, 
So how do we respond to a loving Father in heaven with love? Well, this, is real, this is practical. I told you it's going to be practical. I mean, really. When you're a child, how do you respond to your parents with love? Hug them? Reach for them? Yep, that's good. How do we reach for God? Prayer? That's excellent. That's how we start our relationship. We pray. We reach out, and he's already there. He's like, I've been waiting. Thank you. And then we receive Christ. What else? What do, you know, that's called obeying the gospel, right? The word of God. That's how we get saved. We're, we're born again by the word of God, First Peter. All right. That's right. So God says, if you love me, what do you do? Keep my commandments, right? You keep his word. You obey. Children, when we get to chapter 6 and verse 1, the verse every parent knows by heart. And every child knows by heart, right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Right? So obedience, that's, that's simple. It's just that simple. You know what? If you're going to be a dear child, follow Christ as a dear child. Just do what he tells you. Be obedient. Do what he says. Oh, yeah, that's it. There's no super sauce here. This is, see, this is no big deal. This is like simple. It's not meant to be hard. Just love God. So it's not a, if, 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 Keeping his commandments. If you love me and you keep, is keeping my commandments, which, by the way, will keep you out of trouble and is in your best interest, uh, then you're not surprised when we get to verse 2. And he says, walk in love. Right? It just makes sense, doesn't it? Be therefore followers of God as dear children, semicolon. Well, how, how are we going to do that? We'll do what a dear child does. Walk in love as Christ also loved us. And so... Um, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So I want to talk about the positives in verse 2. And I've titled this, I think i got a blank there, Walk Out the Positive. Walk Out the Positive. Because uh, there's a lot of negative that we're going to look at too. It's kind of like electricity, right? you got positive and negative. So Paul gives us very explicit um, positive, and then he gives us the negative. The things that are going to make your walk great and the things that are going to hurt your walk. Things that are going to make the, the love of Christ manifest and the things that are going to um, sabotage it. All right, so he says here in verse 2, And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. That's as far as I'm going to go right now. Notice the word as. If you've been through the principles of Bible study, uh, or you've been through discipleship too, or you've had a good discipler in D1, they probably already taught you this. What's the principle with as? Anybody remember? What two words are so important in the Bible? Like an as, right? This is important, right? These little words are important. Every word of God is important. So he says, walk, walk in love, and yet just put a period there, comma. Well, how do we walk in love? Oh, I'm glad you asked, Brian. As Christ also hath loved us. Oh, wait a minute. You want me to walk like Jesus loved us? I mean, that's like, think about that just a moment, what that really means. Yeah, that's like sacrifice myself? Yeah. Yeah, unconditional love for other people. Whoa. And then he goes on to say, and hath given himself for us, just in case we, you know, we want to get around it. Like we're, we're wishing there's just a period there. We can fill it in the, with whatever we want. No, he doesn't do that. He says, oh, yeah, just so you get it right, Brian. 
and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. I am talking about a sacrificial love. So just give yourself away. That's simple. Oh, that's easy to say. And so that as and like is a very important word. Because God wants us to be, you know, God, it gives us insights into God's character, right? Why does he spend all this time showing us Christ's deity and the church's unity? Well, because he wants to see us reflect his image. He wants us to look like him. He wants us to get a grip on who we really are in Christ. Remember, this study is about revealing our true identity. Now, I tell you right now, the world, the flesh, and the devil are telling you the opposite. You're a dirty, rotten dog. You're a rotten sinner. Your flesh is, well, your flesh is no good, nor, the, nor is mine, nor was Paul's. Our flesh does stink. But your true identity is a dear, don't get too far past chapter, verse 1, because the rest of this will take you in the dumps if you don't remember what, the way God sees you as a dear child. Well, I know he sees me as a dear child, but he really thinks my sister and my brother stinks. No. He sees them, if they're really born again, they're a dear child. That doesn't mean they're living like a dear child. That may be a problem. It, but it doesn't change the fact that God the Father sees them as a dear child. Even if they're disobedient. Right? Just because a child's disobedient doesn't mean a parent doesn't love them dearly. It breaks the parent's heart when a child's disobedient. Because they know their child is not reaching their potential. It's hurting themselves. A child that's disobedient, you know, is going to hurt themselves. It took me a long time to understand that. Uh, it took me several years to grasp that passage in John about, um, if you love me, keep my commandments. It just was like, that just seems so forceful. How can I, I mean, that just doesn't seem gracious at all. I know you're gracious, God. And then finally one day it hit me. I'm like, oh, I get it. You only told me that because it's in my best interest. I got to believe by faith your character is good. So the devil, by the way, since Genesis chapter 3, what's he been trying to get humanity to believe? God's character is bad. And so it literally, I mean, I know some of you guys are you're in a faster class than I am, but it literally probably took me like three or four years to really figure out what that verse meant because I was like, I know, I know your character is good, God, but how can you just command me to love you? I mean, that just doesn't seem very kind. It doesn't seem very loving. It doesn't seem very gracious. And one day he's like, Brian, you forgot something. I only want you to love me because it's in your best interest. He doesn't need my love. He wants my love. Because if I love him, it's better for me. And that's how he reveals his love for me. So I can give him honor and praise and glory and thank him for how good he is. Are you, are you tracking with me? He sees you as a dear child. It's in our best interest to obey him, to keep his commandments. If we love him, we keep his commandments. And, uh, and, and by the way, if we love his word, his commandments aren't grievous. They're not grievous. Okay. Kind of reveals where I was at, huh? That's pretty carnal. But babies are carnal, by the way. That's what First John or Corinthians tells us, First Corinthians chapter 3. So <clears throat> where am I at? Walk in love. All right, yeah. So we're going to walk out the positives. Notice, and I think I probably have, I don't have slides for all this. I'm sorry. I didn't. Get it all together like I should. So we saw the as and like. So first we see the word walk in love as Christ also loved us. And that's very easy to understand as we've covered a lot of, of ground here. 
Jesus Christ is God, yet he humbled himself to fulfill the will of the Father. The Father loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten Son. The Spirit dwells in us and has quickened us, right? Brought us to life. Ephesians chapter 2 explains that very vividly. So Paul is clear that we are to walk in love as Christ who gave himself sacrificially as our offering for sin. So we are to give our lives for Christ and others. Hence, go back to chapter 4 and remember that you are in the body. Your life is uniquely tied to the body of Christ. So those folks out there, they're like, I'm saved, but I won't go to church. I don't want to have anything to do with those Christians. Well, dude, you're messed up, man. You're not loving God and you're not loving people. You're, not, you're missing the great commandment. So there's something wrong in your heart. Oh, I know Christians, right? They hurt your feelings. That's how, I know. But, man, you know what? They're also dear children. Those are God's kids. And you are, too, if you're really born again. All right, so years ago, I just want to throw this in here. Because a lot of times, if, if we're not walking in love, this is, you're, if you're not back in chapter 4 and verse 32, you know, you're not kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. There's, that is the most miserable thing when the body of Christ cannot get along. It's like a family. When there's strife and turmoil and fighting and carrying on in the family and bickering and hate, hateful. I mean, ew, it's just like wears you out. Unfortunately, I, I grew up, my family had a lot of tranquility. I didn't have a lot of that. I do remember, though, forgive me, sisters, there were times when mom and dad were away, and those two girls, my older sisters, they would get in a fight. And I mean, I remember one time slamming the door so hard, the, the doorbell thing came off in the hallway, fell on the floor. I'm like, wow, these two girls are getting after it. That happens in a family, doesn't it? But what happens when dad gets home? That stops. Yeah, they cover it all up. Good point. They hide in the garden, and uh, they put on some clothes. But they uh, put on the fig leaves. But uh, no, you know what? That, that, that goes on in the family of God. But you know what? He says, hey, be tenderhearted. You know, care for one another. Not only that, sacrifice for one another. Walk in love. Not just any love, but a sacrificial love. So many years ago, I learned an acronym at a conference, and uh, Pastor uh, oh, George Grace was preaching. Amy probably remembers this, and he took these three chairs, and he, and he put joy on them, a J and an O and a Y, and then he preached a message on if you want to have joy, anybody know what it is? That's right, Jesus, others, and yourself, and I was a young Christian at the time. I tell you what, that was one of the most impactful messages I ever heard. You know what he was really saying is what Paul says here in verse 2, put everyone ahead, put Jesus first, put others first, and put yourself in the back. Walk in love, right? Love God, love people, and love yourself last. That's not to say you don't need to invest. You know, you do need to hey, take a shower, keep yourself up, eat a good diet, whatever. You know, it's not like you have to ignore it. We're not ascetics. But at the end of the day, there's a priority if we're going to love God and love people. So, so we should do that. Jesus, others, and ourselves. In, in John chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, These things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. I was talking to someone this week that's lost their joy, and their circumstances are miserable. But you know what? I was encouraging them. I'm like, you know what? First John chapter 1 and verse 4 says, These things have I written unto you that your joy may be full. It doesn't even matter how bad your circumstances are. I was reading about a, a, a guy that was uh, in prison in, um, in Romania back in the day when... Uh, the Marxist Russians had uh, control of the 
satellite countries, and one of them is Romania, uh, Richard Wormbrand. Remember that guy? And he went crazy, like literally mad. He went insane because he did not have the Word of God. But eventually he got the Word of God back, and then he got his joy back. He got his peace back, even though his circumstances were horrible. The persecution and the torture were just unimaginable. And yet the Word of God saw him through that. So there's not a lot of need to exposit this verse. Uh, I think it's self-explanatory. But for the sake of Bible study, uh, there is an explicit admonition by Paul, and I think most of you know it in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, that couples with this perfectly. I know you guys have heard this a million times, but let's just quickly have a look look at it again, refresh our minds. Because Paul says here, this has to be an act of our fruition. To, to have this kind of love is not something that we can just, you know, you gotta you got to have a heart for it. you got to be tenderhearted. The heart has to be ready. So Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So really what Paul says there is you need to live for Christ. Every day, get up and you present your body, not as a dead sacrifice. Not you know, Many of us are not going to be called to literally offer our, our body as a living sacrifice right now anyway. Um, not in the next, you know, 24 to 48 hours. I don't know what's coming up next week. But anyway, so, so, so until then, don't worry about that. Just live every day as a living sacrifice. It's, it's hard to do that sometimes, isn't it? And he says, hey, if you do that, I beseech you, you got to do this. Um, I'm asking you, I'm encouraging you, but only you can make the decision. I can't do it for you. And then he says, and be not conformed. What's that look like? Well, don't be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, the Bible's the will of God. Kevin held it up earlier. Amen. The Bible's the the will of God. But you know what we're to do? We're to prove it out. We're to take these promises and live them out. And so that's what we've got to do. No matter what the circumstance. All right, so that's the, the good thing is, that, is the positive thing is that we get to walk in love. So that's pretty simple. But now I want you to focus here. I want to talk about, uh, you know, we talked about walking out the positive. It's short. One verse. I'm done. Let's go home. I mean, really, that's it. Just give, give your life for Christ. Put others ahead of yourself. Put, get a new mind. You're good to go. It's all. It's so simple. It's like the garden, right? All you got to do is well, just do what I told you. You can have all the fruit of the garden, but this tree, don't eat of it. You're fine. Dismissed. You're like, man, that's early. Praise the Lord. Well, okay, Well, but we're not done yet. Okay, so let's go back to, to the text. And now in verses 3 through 7, Paul lays out some negatives. Uh, and these are, some, these are some, some pretty bad negatives. And you know what? They're, they're pretty unvarnished, too. He doesn't mince words. He knows how us Gentiles are. Uh, he's like, this is going to go to Missouri. These people are show me people, so I'm just going to show them. I'm going to show them the negative. Uh, by the way, the blank is mortify the negative, right? Mortify the negative. Mortify. That's what the mortician deals with dead folk, right? We've got to mortify the negative. We've got to mortify the flesh. So he says in verses 3 through 7, right, this is what you don't do. Or if you don't want to walk in love, here it comes. Here comes the junior high humor. This is what you do do. All right? And it stinks. All right. So Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3. But fornication 
and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become a saints. Hey, Brian, you're a saint. You are set apart for my use. You are a dear child of God. So fornication, all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once be named among you as become a saints. Then he says, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, you already know this, that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. All right. But ye, but I'm sorry, but not ye therefore, be ye not therefore partakers with them. Verse 7. Very simple, very easy. Chef Tell used to say that. Very simple, very easy. So, so let's just kind of walk down through this and, and then we'll get out of here because we only got about 15 minutes left. So, you notice here how simple it is to do what you're supposed to. It's only, it only took Paul one short verse to explain it. Walk in love, walk like Christ. Give your life, you're good. Sacrifice. But Paul now takes five verses, which by the way, what's the number five in the Bible? Death, that's right, number of death. Five verses to say this is going to kill your love. You want to kill the love of Christ? You want, to kill, walk, you want to kill that thing? Here it is. Here's five verses. If you don't obey this, man, you're going to have some problems. And so um, it'll destroy, we'll allow our flesh to destroy our love for God. And if we destroy, if God, if our flesh, if we allow our flesh to destroy our love for God, then who else is it going to destroy our love for? Huh? Our neighbor, exactly. If we don't, if we, if, if we allow our flesh to destroy our love, our heart for God, then you will automatically start having problems with your neighbor. Whether that's your wife, your husband, your, your kids, your church family, your physical family, whatever, your work, co-workers at work, it's going to, you just mark it down, mark it down. Now, these are simple things, but these are simple things that if we don't really do them, right? It's one thing to talk about them, get up and walk, Christopher. No, here, let us, let us help you. Let us help you walk. Paul's breaking this down so nobody can miss it. He's not just saying, love Jesus, sacrifice your life. Oh, what does that look like? Oh, oh, I'm glad you asked. Don't fornicate. Don't give your heart to anything else. Oh, 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 okay, I'm a Gentile. I get it. Gentiles are like dogs. There's a reason we're, we're in our flesh. We're called dogs, not in Christ, but in our flesh before salvation. And so, so the negative is very clear. He takes these five verses and he says, hey, man, uh, these are going to mirror a lot of what you've, I've already told you, right? In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 11 and 12, he said, remember when he was back there, he says, wherefore, remember uh, that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, in your flesh ye were Gentiles, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, the Jews in the flesh made by hands, that at, the time, at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Boy, didn't that describe a lot of people we know? There's a lot of people that are without hope, without God in the world today. Man, they are hurting units. But he says, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were afar off are made nigh, right? You're made close. You're brought to in by the blood of Christ. All right, so back here in our text in Ephesians, um, it's pretty clear what he says. I mean, there's sexual sin, there's idolatry, filthiness, foolish jesting. There's things that we shouldn't just be doing that. 
But it isn't just to us. He writes this to the, or, or not just to the Ephesians. He writes similar things also to the Colossians. Turn over to Colossians 3. This is a pretty meaty passage. Um, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Five more verses. Colossians 3, 5. He says, mortify. This is where I got the word mortify from. Mortify the negative. And this is perfect for the church of Laodicea, by the way. The only epistle, the only place you find Laodicea in the New Testament, other than Revelation chapter 3, is the beginning of this verse, chapter 2 and verse 1. Uh, what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea. So the time in which we live, man, this, this epistle for Colossians is also super appropriate. But he says this in, in chapter uh, 3 and verse 5. He says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Now, he's not talking about your church members, so don't go killing anybody. He's talking about your body parts, right? Your body parts, your members. right? He says, Mortify therefore your members uh, which are upon the earth. No, look at this, it's the same thing. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection. It's not okay, right? It's not okay to be homosexual. It hurts you. That's, it's soon going to be hate speech, and then they're going to come down on us, but that is what the Bible teaches. It's not okay. It doesn't mean I hate you. It just means I got relatives that are you know, living in perversion like that. We got members of our church that have struggled with that. That's okay. If you're born again, God's going to give you grace. But it doesn't mean it's okay any more than being an adulterer is okay. None of that's okay. That's what Paul's saying. All right? So he goes on to say, he says, hey, um, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. It's like, man, what in the world? Those are some big words. And covetousness, which is idolatry. Remember that. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Oh, man, that is almost exactly what he just said in Ephesians. In which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But, oh, man, how beautiful is this? But now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that he hath, uh, ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image, after the image, after the image of him that created him. See, Jesus Christ is the expressed image of God. So we are putting on Christ. We're putting off this old man and putting on the image of Christ. So we should look like Christ. That's who our Father is. We're dear children. You look like your parents, biologically. My mom and I were just talking about that today because uh, we found out biologically that my grandfather isn't actually my grandfather, that she was, it's a long story. <laughs> so I was like, I, I don't know who my great-grandfather was. Maybe this characteristic comes from here or there, but ultimately it all comes from Adam. The point is, though, you look like, your, spiritually, same thing. You look like your physical parents, biologically, but you also, if you're born again, you should look like your father in heaven, spiritually. And that's what Paul's pointing out. If you're really born again, you ought to look like your daddy. You ought to love like your daddy. And you ought to, and you ought to love your brethren. Right? It's, okay, so you guys are tracking with me. That's easy to understand. So point, the next point in your outline, I think, is point D. If I, did I leave that on there, point D, so you can track with me? Is wantonness. M, or W-A-N-T-O-N-N-E-S-S. Wantonness. That's not a word we use very often. Uh, destroys our ability to walk in love. And that's really what he's saying in Ephesians, back in our text in Ephesians 3, 5, or 3, 3 through 5. No, Ephesians 5, 3 through 5. Sorry, I'm confusing myself, which isn't hard to do. 
Ephesians 5, 3 through 5, he's, he's really pointing out that wantonness destroys our ability to walk in love. So what is wantonness? Well, that references an unrestrained sexual appetite. It's very much like lasciviousness uh, or licentiousness, which licentiousness is not in the Bible. Those are big words. Man, that, you guys got to pay 50 cents just to get in here to hear the words like that. So, uh, so anyway, so lasciviousness is a Bible word. It's unbridled lust, licentiousness. Is also it's kind of derivative of that. Um, also dealing with unbridled lust, we we see this as the subject matter of verses three through five of Ephesians, chapter five, and and it really messes up our ability to love. We know also we know, I'm getting ready to preach the book of Malachi. We know that love is a is a real issue, as we get into these last days, because we know when Jesus returns, and we know it even at his first coming that the love of many was waxing cold. So we know prophetically, we know in Malachi that when Jesus returns at the second advent, the second coming, in Revelation, after he returns, he's going to restore the love of the fathers for the sons. So there's been a chasm. Um, Western culture is awesome in many respects, and it's also bad in many respects. I know when the wall in Romania, you could ask my buddy Doug, Doug uh, Howie over in Romania, Doug and Camilla, under communism, the family unit was pretty tight. You know, under slavery, uh, there's a move, there's a book out by uh, Candace Owens. I don't remember the name of it, something like Blacked Out or something like that. It's a good book. I listened to the audio version. I didn't read it, but it has lots of statistics, very interesting. Anyway, these are the points. Uh, my friend Doug in Romania, he said that under communism, the family stayed together under that oppression. But in the 90s, when Amy and I were able to go over there after Ceausescu was deposed and and Doug was on the ground working there. You know what? All of a sudden, there became a division between the younger generation and the older generation. The younger generation was going after affluence. And the older generation was like, wait a minute. This isn't good. And they were, came out of that oppression. They were a little skeptical, cynical. And there became a big, a big generational gap. Well, you know what? The same things happened in our culture in the West which that was Western culture and affluence. In the West now, technology is doing that. I just heard a reporter talking about that the other day that you know, all the people are stirred up about Facebook and Twitter. We're having meetings and, uh, at Congress, and everybody's dealing with the communication and corruption of communication and all that kind of stuff. You know, the young people aren't even on Twitter or Facebook. Nobody's talking about Snapchat. Why? Because those kids, man, they, they, they aren't. There's a division. There's a division. You can even see it in the technology. There's a reason for that. I mean, it's not just a free market economy, and it's just not Marxism that's causing problems. There's a spiritual problem, and it's called Satan trying to divide families. Not just physical nuclear families, but church families, and it all goes together, right? If you can divide the nuclear family, you're going to divide the church family. If you divide the church family, you're going to divide the nuclear family. Because that's what it's all about. God wants us in one family. It's his family. That's why we're dear children. And the love of many can't wax cold. But we know that when Jesus, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get so bad in the coming tribulation that it's going to take Jesus Christ's return to bring back the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. Because it's going to get... You think it's polarizing? How many of you think it's polarizing right now? Oh, man. Totally. You can sense it. In the church, you know, masks, no masks, you know. Uh, BLM a few months ago, you know, where do you stand on that? Do we start, you know, whatever. Uh, 
It just gets, it's getting crazy. It's going to get worse. So what do you do? What do I do? Well, we make a decision. Simple. We love God and we love each other. I don't have to agree with everything. I can still love you. You don't have to agree with everything I do, but you can still love me. And the main thing is that we love Jesus more than anything, and we love each other more than anything, and then everything else can get worked out, right? We can be tender-hearted. Back to the last verse in chapter 4. You guys tracking with me? So what will corrupt that? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Misplaced affection. Sexual appetite. The lo- there's a lot of that's also going to, that's a problem in, in Ephesus. There's the goddess Diana. You go down the temple, you get to have sex with a prostitute, and you're doing your service for God, small g. Right? That's what was going on down in Ephesus. Uh, fertility goddesses, you know, you have prostitution happening. A lot of things going on. Of course, that would never go on in our culture. So Paul's dealing with all of that, and he's saying, hey, guys, uh, fornication is a problem. Uh, illicit sexual activity. For those of us that don't know what fornication is, he says it shouldn't once be named among us. That means it should, it should, not, be, uh, it should not be what we're about. So that means you should not want, we should not want our neighbor's wife, our neighbor's daughter, our neighbor's son, our neighbor's husband, right? If you're married, you shouldn't want to have an inappropriate sexual relationship outside of your marriage, even if your husband or wife approves of it. It's still sin and adultery. I had to throw that last part in. Because that's the way people are running their life. All of that, though, falls under the category, whether it's adultery and all the other stuff, falls under the the general heading for sexual sin is fornication. Sex outside of marriage, fornication. Adultery, specifically a sexual sin related to marriage, but even adultery would fall under the heading of fornication. You see what I'm saying? So it's not separate from, it is separate in the action and definition, but it's still part of fornication. Fornication is a big general word for sexual sin. All right, so for those who say it's okay, hey, Brian, get off us. It's none of your business what we do in our bedroom. I'm like, amen to that. I don't want to know. But the Bible tells us Paul's not scared. He just says it right there. I mean, he just lays it out. He says, hey, uh, fornication, all uncleanness, covetousness, not all just sexual sin, but also filthiness, uh, being covetous. Don't let any of that be named among you as become a saint. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient. No. Who's that comic, that black guy? Uh, I can't think of his name. He's real thin. Super funny guy. Not Chris Rock. His name came to mind. Chappelle, thank you. I can't watch Chappelle. I just can't. It's just filthy. Foolish jesting, I can't do it. I'm not saying the guy's, uh, so what about you, Bob? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, no, because the guy's funny. He used to have like a little TV series, and I saw a couple things, and I'm like, that's funny, but I can't watch this. It's just too filthy. And I'm sure whatever he does in a concert is even worse. So, but anyway, uh, that's just how it is, man. You, I'm like, I can't watch. I, you, back in the day, we used to enjoy, um, what was that show, Friends? We used to watch Friends, Amy and I. And then one day we're watching it, and I'm like, you know, all these people are fornicating. And they're just acting like it's not. And then our conscience, I'm like, turn it off. 
And we just got rid of it. We just, we just quit watching it. Now, I'm not, I know some people think you're legalistic. No, I really, I, maybe I am. But whatever. The reality is I just, I don't want to entertain myself with, with, with that. It was, there was some funny stuff in there, but it really wasn't appropriate. Now, I didn't have to tell you that. I hope you don't look down on me for watching Friends once upon a time. I wasn't a pastor at the time, not that that matters. But my point is, you get my point. And I'm not, if you're into friends and God hasn't convicted your conscience, that's up to you. I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm just saying. There's just some time, you're just like, you know, that's just not, that's just not setting well. I, I gotta, there's been a few times I should have walked out of some movies, but I'm like, oh, I bought the ticket. That's bad on me. I should have just walked out. Uh, back in the day, mainly. But uh, there was this one movie, uh, The Postman, I watched. It was terrible. Not because of the, it wasn't extremely bad with, you know, uh, language or anything, but there was a part of it about it, it just it just troubled my soul, and uh, I shouldn't I shouldn't have watched it. I got convicted because a lady at work she went to see it and said the same thing. She said, "Yeah, me and my husband walked out." I was like, "Dang, I should have. I should have. I was too afraid to lose my twelve bucks or whatever." <laughs> so uh, terrible. Anyway. Now you're starting to sound like an old, independent, fundamental Baptist preacher, Brian. I'm just saying. Paul says it right here. He says, but fornication, I'm telling you, you can apply this stuff. You can apply it. Fornication, all uncleanness, covetousness, let it not once be named among you as become a saint. What makes a saint look good? So we looked at fornication. Let me just touch on that a little bit further. Definition. In Webster's, the incontinence or lewdness of unmarried persons, male or female, also criminal conversation of a married man with an unmarried woman. That's point E. If you have a point E, and I don't. All right, I'm just going to leave that there. Um, you can find it in Matthew 5, 1 Corinthians 5. Idolatry, it's also considered idolatry, forsaking the one true God and worshiping idols. In 2 Corinthians 21, 11, which is the first mention of it, it's not necessarily completely dealing with sexual sin. It says, moreover, he made... High places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit fornication and compel Judah thereto. So spiritual. Yes, Ron. I said, yeah, Chronicles. Man, you're on your A game, Ron. So Chronicles, thank you. Second Chronicles 21.11. Dealing with sexual. So taking the children of Israel and getting to worship other gods is called fornication. He's not talking although there was sexual fornication often associated with those fertility goddesses, but he's also, more importantly, dealing with the spiritual implications of the heart, the, the, the implications of taking the heart away from God. The first mention of the word fornication refers to spiritual idolatry, which close, closely aligned with sexual sin. The last mention of the word fornication refers to Satan's bride, the whore perdition in Revelation 19.2. For the true and right, and for it says in Revelation 19.2, for true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath Judge the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. The next thing he says is uncleanness. That's still used today. We say the words like dirty and filthy, etc. as a term for moral impurity, defilement, and sometimes sexual impurity. The definition it simply means that, being dirty or filthy. And we associate it with immorality to this day. The first mention relates to the religious defilement before the Lord in Leviticus 5.3. Or if he touched the uncleanness of a man, whatsoever uncleanness it be, that a man shall be defiled withal and be hid from him. Uh, when he knoweth of it, then shall he be guilty. 
if uh, or if he touched the uncleanness of a man. So it's talking about the cer- the purity, the ceremonial purity of the Old Testament law. And there's all kinds of parameters on being clean and unclean, fit for worship, fit for for fellowship, right? And so those are the things that you know uncleanness can affect your fellowship. Have you ever noticed when you're in sin, you don't feel like fellowshipping? You want to stay away naturally. I, I know we all do it. You need to come anyway, and you need to get clean. You need to get under the water of the word. God will wash you because it really is a heart issue. Um, that's why, yeah. So moving on, uh, the last mention of the word uncleanness deals with the relationship of authority. In Second Peter two ten, it says, "But chiefly them that walk after the flesh and the lust of uncleanness, and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities." Boy, isn't that going around right now? A lot of people not afraid to speak evil of dignities, even if the dignities aren't dignified. <laughs> so you have to be careful. That can be a, that can be an indication of uncleanness. Now we're not talking about sexual stuff here. We're talking about issues of the heart affecting the way we behave. And then he mentions covetousness, a strong inordinate desire to obtain or possess the goods or wealth of others. In the Old Testament, Achan, right? You remember the sin of Achan? The time of Joshua, he was covetous, took a Babylonianish garment, that, that priestly garment from that false religion, and it was so beautiful, and he took it, and he knew he wasn't supposed to, and he hides it under the tent floor because he just had to keep that souvenir. And the whole congregation's getting judged for it. And finally, Joshua was like, who in the world, why did we lose a battle? Who in the camp has sin in their life? You're someone's sins affecting all of us. And finally, Achan comes out, and they stone him and his family. To, to relieve the nation of the of the judgment, aren't you glad for Christ? God abhors the covetous. In Psalms chapter ten and verse three, it says, "For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesseth blesseth the covetous, whom the Lord abhorreth." In our culture today, you know what we were talking about: so and so's crib and and the lifestyles of the rich and famous. And I'm not saying all of those people are covetous. Many of them may not be, but for those that are. When we look at people who are covetous and we honor them and glorify them and we, we confuse success for covetousness, there's only one mention of the word success in the Bible, Joshua 1.8, right? And it's directly related to the Word of God. So, you know what? The Word of God is what's successful. Outside of that, you're, you're off base. And so, yeah, God said it. I didn't say it. He says in Psalms 10.3, The wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesseth the covetous, whom the Lord abhorreth. I know people like that. They're only interested in people who got the money, and that's their value system in life. And you're no good if you're not one of those. And a lot of the times, those people are the poor. You know, some of the most covetous people can be people that are poor, and they're always wanting, wanting, wanting something they'll never get. And if they got it, they wouldn't be satisfied. The devil just keeps that carrot hanging out in front of them. So it's not just because you have money. You can have money and not be covetous. And you can have no money and be covetous and want what someone else has. So we also got to get that right. That's really important to understand today, too, because, again, I keep mentioning Marxism. That's one of the tenets of Marxism is wealth redistribution. If you have means that you're evil, that's not exactly true. It's only true if you're covetous. There are people that have means, and God gives them means because he can trust them. To whom much is given, much is required. And there are people that can steward wealth better than others. That's why they have it. And if they have a good heart, a lot of the philanthropy in our country is by people who have given their wealth. We're a very giving nation, by the way. America's amazing. Okay, moving on. 
So God abhors the covetous. When we turn our eyes to the uh, our eyes to the Word of God, this is cool. It takes away from the nature of our heart to be covetous, because we all are covetous by in our flesh. But the spirit uh, is not covetous, because it's the spirit of God. So in Psalms one nineteen and verse thirty six, David says, "Incline my heart unto thy testimonies." Right? Incline that means go up. His ways are above our ways, and not to covetousness. So when we incline our heart to God's word, then we don't we don't incline it to covetousness. When we when we exalt God's word, covetousness goes away. That's why you see people giving their life as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. They're going off to be missionaries. They're giving up their time, talent, and treasure. This church has a lot of people who love God. I can tell because they're not covetous. Protect your Bible, your biblical identity. That's point H, right? Fornication, uncleanness, nor covetousness should not be named once among us as become a saints. Can anyone say that about you? Can they call you a fornicator? Can they say, well, that person's just unclean, they're filthy. Can they call you covetous? It shouldn't be named among us. As become, if you call yourself a saint, then you should not be involved in that. Sometimes our actions speak so loud, people don't hear us. You can tell people all day, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm Christ, I'm his dearly beloved. Well, then why don't we live like it? If that's our true identity, then we should live like it. That's what verse 2 is dealing with. So place a watch on our tongue. In verse 4 and 5, he says, Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Dirty jokes need to go. Foolish talking needs to go. Filthy and foolish jokes should be replaced with thanksgiving and praise. And it's important because you got a point J, protect your inheritance. Protect the inheritance. Remember, he's given us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. I know people that say, you know, if my grandkids don't do what's right, I'm taking back their inheritance. I heard an attorney say, well, that's really not a nice thing to do. I don't care. <laughs> so, okay. A truly born-again Christian cannot lose his or her salvation, but we can lose our inheritance. For this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater have any inheritance in the kingdom of God. You know what a whoremonger is. That's the John, the dude or the lady who seeks illicit services to satisfy their sexual appetites. In Ephesus, they were probably going down to the temple and engaging in that activity. And unclean persons, those living a filthy lifestyle, covetous person already covered above, I've talked about it, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 says, For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. So watch the wicked words, point K. They destroy our ability to walk in love. We've already seen that. So let no man deceive you with vain words, empty words. Because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. So don't walk with those that are going to be destroyed. Be therefore partake. Don't be, uh, be not ye therefore partakers with them. Get away. There are those who speak empty words who desire to deceive. Paul says don't allow them to deceive you. If they, if they have guile in their mouth, they, they are clouds without water. I was going to look up 2 Peter 2, 9 through 17. I, I wanted to read all of it, but that's your other homework. Look up 2 Peter 2, 9 through 17 and read all of that, and then you'll get to verse 17, 
And Paul or Peter calls them, these are wells without water, clouds that are carried about with a tempest to whom the mists of darkness is reserved forever. There are people expressly set aside for hell that are actively engaging and giving words out to deceive and beguile Christians. And I can remember when I was lost, I was one of them. I would seek out Christians and I wanted to defile them. I don't know why, because I was lost. It bothered me that they were so righteous. And Jude says the same thing. People feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about with winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. If you know those dudes, don't hang out with them. I mean, you may have to work with them. You may have to go to meetings with them. But man, don't go to the wells with them. I can tell you went them to Christ. <laughs> but I mean, if, 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 you, if you, you know, you got to be careful with these relationships. I'm not saying don't, like Paul said in the first Corinthians, you're in the world, you got to win the people to Christ. You don't expect the world to act like lost people. But when someone's professing to be a Christian and they're acting like a lost person, go the other way. Call them out. Don't be deceived, don't be beguiled. You expect dogs to act like dogs. But people who say they're saints, uh uh-uh. Ephesians 4.14, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, and the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. When we were a young baby church, these guys would show up, because we were a young baby church. And they'd come in with their doctrines, and they'd get me aside, try to convince me of some doctrine. I'd just listen and go, no, that's a cloud without water there. There's no fruit on that tree. He's not having any influence in this place. So we know there are plenty of false teachers and prophets frequenting Ephesus. But you know the good news is they were successful. In Revelation 2, the Bible says in verse 1, Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. They obeyed what Paul said, and hast borne and hast patience for my name's sake, and hast labored and hast not fainted. They did that very well. So if we're going to walk in love, we need to walk away from wantonness and wicked words. Walk away. And that's what he says in verse 7. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. If you're wise, you'll walk with wise men. That's what Proverbs 13, 20 says. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools, he's destroyed. Proverbs 9, 6, forsake the foolish and live and go in the, the way of understanding. Man, we know if you've ever read Proverbs, Proverbs, if you're struggling with this, read Proverbs. I used to be in situations I won't get into where I would be around dangerous people, people that are not good people. And you know what? Proverbs saves your bacon. You can find the parameters. He that walk with wise men will be wise. A companion of fools will be destroyed. There are people looking for blood that will pin it on you. And uh, they're out to do deceitful and wicked things, and you can't allow yourself to be a part of that. There's a time you've got to separate out and say, you know what, I can't walk with you anymore. You're not right. That doesn't mean God doesn't love them. It doesn't mean you don't love them. It just means, you know what, I can't walk this way. This is not the path I'm on. If you want to know what kind of child you have, look at the company they keep. You know what, God wants to look at the company I keep and go, what kind of child do I have? When I got saved, I lost a lot of friends. I was, I'll tell you what, I was lonely for a season. 
Uh, but God provided new friends, and he provided a spiritual family. And man, praise God, he fulfills all those needs. So don't put up with foolishness. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but reprove them. That's what Ephesians 5.11 says. We'll talk about that next time. First Peter 1, I've got other verses that say the same thing. Let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. We need to make sure we let Christ, you know what? When Christ looks good to us, he's going to look good to others. When he's our priority, it's not some false self-righteousness. It's not a set of exterior rules, you know. It's an issue of what's going on in the heart, tender-hearted. Are we receiving the word of God? Are we honoring Christ above every other relationship? When we put the relationships in the right order, all the walking works its way out, in our, and it comes out in our feet. So we don't walk like an Egyptian, right? We walk like a Christian. Not because a set of rules, oh, Brian gave me three rules, no fornication, no covetous, no, no. That's what the Bible says. Those are results. The, the only rule we have is to, is to walk in love as Christ hath also loved us and hath given himself for, for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. If we do that, if we love God and we love people, all this other stuff takes care of itself. And it just works its way out. And you don't have to worry about verses 3 through 5 being prominent in your life. And that's practical. You can use that today. Amen? Okay, let's be dismissed because I'm overdue. Uh, thank you for coming tonight. Heavenly Father,